So we're going to be in the gospel passage again. And I'm going to give you a a recap because I want to continue along the lines of exactly what Jesus developed last week. Because I want to, I feel like he finishes a a section of scripture uh, today uh, with the end of Matthew 18. So I want us to linger there a bit. But let me give you a brief recap just to uh, refresh your memory. So last week, okay, there's two parts to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. First part, okay, here's the rule of life for a healthy Christian community. Uh, here's how we deal with sin. Somebody sins, you confront them. If that doesn't work, and I'm going to give you the very, very bullet points, obviously. If that doesn't work, you bring one to two others from that community, okay, from the discipling community, not just anybody. So you deal with it head on. You act out of love for that person's interest. That's why you confront them. And why do you do that? Well, Jesus describes sin as dangerous. It hurts individuals. It hurts the community. So it's actually... Uh, something you're trying to do this out of care for this other person. Now, if they um, harden their heart, refuse to listen, then you sort of release them over to the, the Lord's discipline, right? If, if one-on-one doesn't work and if a small group doesn't work and if the church community or uh, the discipling community doesn't work, then you say, okay. Um, you let them follow their sin and they become as one outside the community, okay? And that's a recognition of what's already happened. Um, because of their own actions, that fellowship started to be broken, okay? So that's already a broken thing. So this is not, um, this is sort of recognizing what is. Uh, it's not motivated by like personal vendettas. It's not about bad blood. I'm going to stick it to so-and-so. It's not about retaliation. It is hope for restoration, redemption. So you give them over to the Lord. Say, okay, you know, I'm going to, if this is what you want, I, okay. This is not what we want for you, but all right. That's part one. Part two, uh, 18 to 20. Uh, Jesus gets into how spiritual authority works in the church. Interesting term. But he talks about the binding and the loosing. Remember all that language? So binding. What are the things that are forbidden in the community? What are the things that are not good for the community? And it gets into loosing. What are the things that are permitted? That's what that whole binding, loosing things uh, is all talking about. What's befitting of the disciple community and what isn't? So Jesus equips them and empowers these shepherd leaders. He's talking to the disciples with spiritual authority to make those decisions and act and govern on behalf of the community. So is it about church discipline? Yes, but it's not all about that. I think there's a larger issue at work there uh, of healthy, uh, uh, how would I say it? Like the healthy practice of spiritual authority as it relates to the well-being and health of the church, the discipling community. And Jesus promises, and I love how it ends, he's going to be with them. He's going to abide with them. These shepherd leaders, as they govern and guide, Jesus is going to be with them. Okay? Emmanuel, God with us. And our three takeaways that I gave you, we're almost done with our recap here, uh, that I think this, that passage beckoned us to was one for courage. Okay? So not to avoid conflict, not to sidestep sin, but to deal with it boldly. Um, second piece was love. Okay? The reason we confront a brother or sister is because we want what's best for them. We're acting in their interest. It's doing the hard labor of love. And we do all the necessary internal work that we need to do beforehand so that we don't, in talking to them, add our sin to theirs. Okay? And lastly, I think this is the, uh, it might be the linchpin, I don't know, humility. So we come in humility. That ground is level at the foot of Jesus, foot of the cross. Kind of that, but for the grace of God, go I. It's that whole attitude. So nobody's better than anybody. We're all talking at eye level. That was Matthew 18, 15 through 20. As for Matthew 18, 21 through 35, today, Jesus just talked about how we deal with sin in a healthy, communal way. 
Okay? And then he just talked about the healthy and necessary use of spiritual authority. Okay? He pivots. And he talks about forgiveness. Now, I got to tell you, if you don't get anything, well, I hope you get more than this. What a wise and brilliant move on Jesus' part that this would be the next thing that he would deal with after this talk of sin and, and discipline and spiritual authority and all that stuff. The necessity of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And that comes in the form of a question. And it comes from Peter, which makes sense. Peter often is the spokesperson or the most vocal or what have you. So he asked Jesus, so, okay, Jesus, what if a brother or sister sins against me and I forgive him or her? Like, what, up to seven times, right? Um, let's make an observation here. We're not talking about sin in general. This time it is personal. It's against you, okay? So someone is sinning against you. So this question Peter's asking actually has been answered and discussed. Prominent rabbis of his day said their answer was not more than three. So three, one, two, and three, that was prudent. Anything after that, you're kind of on your own. Three strikes and you're out. So Peter is really being magnanimous here with saying, Jesus, seven times, and maybe he was expecting an attaboy. Good job. I don't know. Uh, seven times. That's a generous thing based off Jewish culture at that time. And you know Jesus' reply. I say to you, not seven but 77, or some of your translations say 70 times 7. And he's riffing off the Old Testament, as he often does, Genesis 4, 24. Now, when he says this, you need to cue at all the disciples' jaws hitting the floor. Bam. That number would have made your head spin. Peter's was already incredibly generous. And, Peter, and Jesus just puts it through the roof. Uh, we've gone from 3 to 7 to 70 or 70 times 7, 77 or 490, whatever it is. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't being literal here. That's not the point. He's not asking you to count it up. What he's doing is giving a very impossible exaggeration and a really absurd number. Totally absurd. He's asking us to forgive without keeping track. That's the point. Because if we are keeping a ledger of who sinned against us, we're probably not forgiving folks. That's what Jesus is getting at. So he's admonishing us to forgive very abundantly and frequently as God has done with us. This is to be a normative Christian practice. But better to paint it with pictures. Pictures better than words. So Jesus does that. Tells them a parable. It's like this. And this has been called the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. So I love this. It gives him some handles for it. Here's what this looks like, guys. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Let's unpack this. So a king calls his servant or slave to settle up accounts. Okay? Uh, servants or slaves, that's the translation. Either translation is fine. Both connotations give you what you need to know. These folks lived under the authority of a master or king, often in their own households. They could rise to high positions of authority and gain a lot of trust within that household. Now, Jesus isn't endorsing, nor is he commenting on the practice of slavery here. It was a very common reality in the ancient Near East. Uh, it looked very different than it has in the U.S., but it was a reality. He's using this as an example because folks understand what he's talking about. Okay? He's not endorsing it. He's just saying it's like this. He's observing things as they are. Okay? So the king calls a servant. Uh, time to settle up accounts. This fellow 
owed the king 10,000 talents, which to us means nothing. But again, to the audience or disciples, the jaw hits the floor again. A talent is the largest form of currency in that day and age. So I think the largest bill in the U.S. is, what, 10 10 grand for a a bill? So he's saying the highest unit of currency, and he's combining that with 10,000, which again, we go, so what? What does that mean? That's the highest Greek numeral. So literally, if you take him literally, this is 150,000 years worth of income. Okay? Get the picture? 150,000 years. This is an idiomatic way of saying literally a man owed somebody a billion dollars or a zillion dollars. That's what Jesus is getting. So you kind of get the picture, right? This is a crushing, staggering, oppressive debt. It's as large as the debt of probably some small countries. He can't pay it. He cannot pay it. So the king decides to sell himself, his family, uh, and to try to earn back his money that way. Again, another common practice, not unusual to do this. The servant begs for more time. Have patience with me. I'll, I'll pay you back. I just need more time, right? Now, guys, with this astronomically high figure, a billion, a jillion, a zillion dollars, that's a promise he cannot keep. Totally impossible, totally unrealistic. Nobody's ever going to pay back this debt. It's Jesus' point, but he still promises to. I think the disciples or the original audience would have been like, there's no way you can pay that back. That's impossible. Impossible. It's too big. So there's that. There's a lot of shock and awe in this parable, if you haven't noticed. And it continues. It keeps going and going. Uh, then the king does something uh, rather tremendous and rather scandalous and marvelous. He doesn't give him what he begged for. Doesn't do that. Which would have been very kind, by the way. That would have been kind to say, I will give you more time. That would have been a kind thing to do, incredibly. Instead, what he does is he releases him. And he forgives him of this crushing, staggering, completely, utterly oppressive, impossible to pay back debt. Says he has compassion for him. Some of your Bibles say pity. It's the same word and language used for Jesus when it says he has compassion on someone. Okay? Someone in need. So tell me, I'm going to get, I'm look for head nods. Tell me you're seeing the gospel parallels here already. Are you seeing them? You getting them? Tracking. Good. Because we want, we can't miss that. Now, one would think this extremely extravagant, merciful, compassionate act would have radically changed this man. You'd think, wouldn't you? If someone, you had a billion dollar debt and someone said, I'm, I'm going to wipe that clean. I've got it. It's forgotten. It's done. You would think, you'd think, but we know how the parable goes and here's how it goes. So this servant or slave now freed from that crushing, staggering, oppressive, impossible to pay back billion dollar debt. He finds a fellow servant or slave, probably one in authority under him with how the text reads. This person owes him about three or four months wages. That's about the equivalent there. Now that's not insignificant. Get this, until you realize it's one six hundred thousandth of what he owed the king. You got that? One six hundred thousand. This is peanuts, minuscule, absolutely absurd by comparison. This fellow servant pleads, I need more time. Please give me more time and I'll repay you. And actually, that's a reasonable uh, request and one that he can actually fulfill. 
Same plea he made earlier to the king. How does he respond? Chokes the guy, and he hasn't thrown into prison. So he's violent with him, and he's merciless. Merciless. Now, he does exercise his rights by jailing him and his, his fellow servant, right? Uh, he does, does have the right to do that. But think of this. He's, this is a dude who's in, he's in the same position of servitude as him, okay? This is someone uh, who understands it and who's in debt, just like he was. I mean, talk about a misuse of rights. Guess what? Bad news travels fast. Gets back to the king. King hears about it. He summons that original servant who he forgave. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt. Shouldn't you have had mercy as I had mercy on you? And he has him delivered to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So literally, the servant abused the grace that was given to him. He abused it. He poured out cruelty on someone else. He carried forward none of the mercy, none of the compassion that the king showed to him. Which tells me he didn't understand it in the first place. So the king reverts to what he chose not to do initially, and could have. He hands him over to the jailers until the debt's paid. And I've got to be really honest. It makes me a little squeamish, and it makes other translators squeamish too. Jailers is not the most accurate word there. Tortures actually is. It's more accurate to the tone and the meaning. It was an ancient practice. You would give someone over to the jailers, i.e. torturers, and what they would do is they would use torture in order to extort a more expedient repayment from the family. Okay? Pretty he- that's heavy duty. And as if that wasn't heavy duty enough, here's how it ends. Here's Jesus' here end of the lesson. It's a very chilling and weighty pronouncement. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I mean, that should land like a lead balloon in your heart. This is not a one-off statement that we can brush off and go, well, Jesus was just being, it's echoed. He echoes the same exact thing in the Lord's Prayer section earlier in Matthew 16. So Jesus gets eschatological here. While God is generous beyond compare, he apparently doesn't forgive the unforgiving. That's scary. Let that sink in for a minute. So for those who abuse and presume upon his kindness, God doesn't seem to suffer fools. If you don't forgive, don't expect it from God, Jesus says. It's that Matthew 7, 1 through 2 idea. When it comes to forgiveness, the measure you use against someone is how God's going to measure it back to you. So this is a very unflinching picture of someone who never understood forgiveness or grace in the first place. When you do forgive... Jesus says it must be from where? Right there. It's got to come from the heart. Meaning, uh, this isn't just, hey, from your emotions. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. No, deep place in you. Deep place of identity and who you are. He's saying, guess what, folks? You can't go through the motions. You've got to do that internal work and offer forgiveness. And it's got to be offered freely. It's got to be offered without reluctance. And it's got to be offered without the entitlement as the injured party. So we need to be not only ready to forgive, but I think eager to forgive. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, if you really read this parable blow by blow, I get vertigo. I mean, it is 
It's like a roller coaster. It begins with, it's got so much drama, right? It's got shock and awe. It's got the crushing debt and the plight of the servant. It's got that unexpected, undeserved, and absurd generosity of the king. And then it's got the servant abusing that gift and abusing a fellow servant. And then it has this very tragic ending. The ending reads like a cautionary tale or a morality play. It does tell us that God is quite serious about forgiveness. We know that, but it's good to be reminded of it. He's more serious about forgiveness than we are. Unless we forget Jesus is still describing what the discipling community should look like. That still applies to all this section I'm talking about. The parable began with the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, we are to embody and to be the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the church's job, to be the body of Christ, hands and feet in the world. We are to be renowned and actually eternally marked by forgiveness. We're to be extravagant in this. We're to be known as people who are people of forgiveness. But you know the difficulties with that as well as I do. Sadly, uh, we Christians are more often known for killing our own wounded and refusing to forgive our enemies outside the church. So I think this is something that grieves God and brings about his righteous anger. I think it stirs up much in the heart of God. I'm going to give you my own parable. Is that okay? Again, picture's worth a thousand words. So hopefully I'll paint a good picture with these words. I'm going to give you a parable in film about what forgiveness looks like. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is like this. It is like the movie The Mission. Who's seen The Mission before? 1986. I saw it when I was in youth group, and it left an indelible impression on me. Still with me to this day. Tell you a little bit about it. Uh, the story is about the 18th century, uh, 18th century in uh, South America, Jesuit missionaries, and they're in these remote jungles in like Argentina or Paraguay, somewhere in there, and they're on a small mission, founding a mission to the Warani people. Okay, that's the setup. Two main characters you need to know. First one is Father Gabriel. Brilliant performance by Jeremy Irons. He is the priest who founds the mission in, uh, to the Guarani people. He's a protagonist in the film. And he's wise. He's very gentle. He's very humble uh, and brave in, very, in a very quiet, steadfast way. He's that personality. Enter the antagonist, Rodrigo Mendoza, played by Robert De Niro. Brilliantly. He's a mercenary. He's a slave trader of the Guarani people. So he sells them as slaves. That's how he makes his living. Now, a little backstory. In an unrelated turn of events, Mendoza ends up killing his younger brother. And in his regret, he sinks into a very deep and very dark depression. Okay? Can't get past it. Father Gabriel, remember him, reaches out to him and suggests he undertake penance for his sin. Yeah, you know, Jesuit, Roman Catholic, you get that. Let's do penance. So, Rodrigo takes it on. I will do penance. And he does it with vigor. He stubbornly seeks to punish himself for all of his sins and for his crime. So he does his best to hurt himself and punish himself and make it count and make it hurt. Here's what that penance looks like. Okay, so here's where the picture really begins. So, He's going to return to the Guarani mission with Father Gabriel. And here's how he's going to do it. He drags a massive bundle of armor and weaponry behind him. 
tied to a rope. Massive, heavy. Uh, these are the symbols of his violent sin, right? These are the, the symbols of his slaving past. He's dragging him behind him, dragging him up rocky crag, crags and steep, treacherous paths and all that. And the struggle is mighty and profound. Watching him go, he will not give it up. He will not give up. He is going to punish himself and earn his penance. He is going to pay for his sins if it kills him. And then this happens. He reaches the village, the Guarani people. Okay? He's the very place, the very people that he sold into slavery. They recognize him. They know who he is. They know this is the enemy. This is the person who persecuted us. But after some tense moments, here's what happens. Some Guarani men, they come out and they cut off. They cut off that bundle from his back. They cut it off and they push it down a waterfall. They set him free, literally. And Rodrigo, former slaver, is actually embraced by them. And he just weeps and weeps. And you can see there are te- initially it's tears of remorse and tears of regret and tears of deep sadness. And eventually they turn into tears of joy and divine relief. Finally. And Rodrigo, the antagonist, becomes Rodrigo, the protagonist. He's changed. I've had forgiveness. I mean, that scene, I still remember as a maybe 16, 17-year-old, seeing that, and it just marked me. I thought, that's what forgiveness must be like. And it is. The kingdom of heaven is like that. So go around the mission. Watch it. God's forgiveness is offered freely, extravagantly. And if we presume upon it, it means we haven't gotten it yet, right? It took me uh, the better part of 30 years to understand that, that paying for God's forgiveness was just the divine mark of grace. That's what it is. Uh, Archbishop Cranmer, obviously big in our Anglican history, this was said about him. It said, if you did him an injury, he was sure to become your friend. That's who I want to be when I grow up. That's who I want to be. So folks, I just want to share with you a few last thoughts here. Forgiveness is good for your soul. Who's going to disagree with that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's actually healing. Forgiveness is healing. It's good for the one confessing the sin. It's good for the one being asked to forgive. It's good. It's healing. Confession, receiving forgiveness are, uh, oh my God, they're so powerful. They're more powerful than we can imagine there. Why? Because when you harbor resentment, when you nurture your hurt, when you refuse to let go of your woundedness, you are enslaved. You put yourself back in slavery. It also mocks the cross. It's like saying to Jesus, you know, your death covered everything, but it didn't cover this. Ah, it's unredeemable. So please do not let the cancer of unforgiveness, do not let it enslave your heart because it will, and it does. You have to fight against bitterness. You have to fight against hardness. It is a temptation that's ever before us all the time. So in my opinion, you want to see a truly free man or woman, Look for a Christian who practices forgiveness. It's part of their spiritual diet. 
You want to see somebody who's free? Huh, find that person. It is a spiritual discipline to forgive. It is. And I think it's one of the most neglected and one of the most vital. It's what we're to be known by. <laughs> I mean, think of it. That cross, that's the symbol of our faith. That's all about forgiveness. That's all about reconciliation. And that forgiveness shows that we have, uh, I don't want to say understood because that's not deep enough. It shows that God's grace has made it into our heart. That we've been marked by God's kindness such that we begin to extend that to our brothers and sisters around us. So Jesus' answer to Peter's question, how much should I forgive, is to point him to the extravagant forgiveness of God, the unfathomable love of God for us. So let's close here. I told you forgiveness is healing. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you might be healed. Okay? Forgiveness is healing. Why walk around wounded when you don't have to anymore? Why? We are a community defined by the cross. That, if you'll notice, we now have a plumb line hanging from the cross to remind us that whenever someone's up here preaching or reading the word of God or praying the prayers of the people, that's our anchor point, right? We're defined by the cross. We're a people, a community defined by the cross of Christ. It's our precious symbol of forgiveness and redemption. So let's remember that as we practice the healing discipline of forgiveness together. We're going to have a chance to do that some during the peace, and I'll say more about that when we get there.